Greetings fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension, you're listening to The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, I'm Mike and she's Emma and today we're looking at some of the controversies of Doctor Who. Oh yes, so this is going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. So what we've got here is um, we have a list from uh, denofgeek.com um, of the 50 controversies throughout Doctor Who. Now this isn't uh, an entirely up-to-date list, I think it was uh, written around about October last year, 2013, as we um, yeah. record this. So, you know, there's going to be a, a few bits that have come, you know, since <laughs> that yeah. um, probably missed out and probably might do a follow-up show to that sometime. But um, this is quite a long list. So what we've decided to do is we're actually going to split this over this episode and the next episode. So what we'll be doing in this one is numbers 50 through 26. So, Emma, if you wouldn't mind taking us away. Sounds good to me, mate. Let's crack on then. So, number 50. Uh, it of 50 is Bug-Eyed Monsters. Yes. Uh, so, just going to read the read the text here. Sidney Newman, a genius of telly, occasionally had his off days. One of his stipulations in the creation of Doctor Who was the lack of any BEMs, or Bug-Eyed Monsters. He therefore was quite annoyed with producer Verity Lambert at the prospect of the Daleks, having envisioned the show as being more educational. Lambert and script editor David Whittaker had to fight to include the monsters. The rest, they say, is Terry Nation's bank balance. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you watch an adventure in time and space, you know uh, uh, there's a bit of an interlude there as Verity's fight to get the Daleks onto mm. the show. I mean, I I can sort of understand like where Sidney Newman was coming from because the original idea for Doctor Who was it was supposed to be educational. And so, like, when your second full story is about... It's exactly what you said you didn't want. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. you know what? We wouldn't... The the show wouldn't be what it is today. I don't don't think without the Daleks. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, the Daleks are kind of... They are the premier monster Mm. of Doctor Who. I mean, they're kind of... sort of one of the icons one of the pillars of the show Mm. if you take someone who's never watched an episode of doctor who and show them a dalek they know what a dalek is just sort of the outline look you know and it's it's kind of the go-to it's the go-to everything about doctor who almost they are the iconic monster and you know one of those things of hindsight is 2020 and it's easy to say you'd look back and say oh what a dumb idea Mm -hmm. on sydney newman's part like you say he wanted it to be educational or not about spindly aliens and god Mm. knows we had some absolute shockers in our time aliens wise (laughs) but um yeah it it worked out for the best Mm. so number 49 william hartnell on top of the notorious Billy Fluffs, where Hartnell would mangle his lines due to a combination of intense production schedules, illness, and a deliberate character trait, Hartnell was also a difficult man. He had his favourites amongst the guest actors and wanted things to be just so. His attitude to race and religion have also been remarked on by Nicholas Courtneyton and Anka Wills, who attributed anti-Semitic and racist comments to Hartnell, respectively. Yet actors from those backgrounds spoke of getting on well with the actor. The issue must likely remain in exactly details a complex and an edifying blight. Mm. Uh, it's one of those things of can you can you separate the art from the artist? Mm. I mean, I'm a I'm a big lover of H.P. Lovecraft stories, and the <laughs> man was an anti-Semitic, misogynist, racist piece of shit, <laughs> effectively. So yeah. <laughs> can I still enjoy his work, mm. but knowing all those things about him, in you know, it's one of those things of you kind of have to say, well, look at the man's work, and not you can still say that I disapprove of the man, mm. 
but I don't think it casts um, for me. I don't think it casts any sort of aspersions on Doctor Who at all. Myself, no. the no. man's the man's way of being. He was, I mean, and as well, there's for me. I've, I've obviously been been to conventions and read books and things like that. That <clears throat> you get a really there, there's really not one single narrative about the way Bill Bill was. Mm-hmm. And I think when we talked about adventuring time in space again, that. I was concerned about what sort of portrayal of Bill are we going to get? Yeah. You know, how, how, um, how is he going to come across in sort of how far are they going to go down one road of him being an unpleasant guy? And, you know, you have to sort of hold your hands up and say he was not a nice bloke Mm. or are you going to try and whitewash it? And I think that they kind of, they struck the balance right in the show. Yeah. Um, So, Really, if, if if you know, you don't have to approve of the man's views, and God knows I don't. Hmm. It's um, <clears throat> it's just one of those things that, and you know as well, how old he was, the the views of the day and his age. Unfortunately, yeah, I was just about to say his, that his views were not unique. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that actually. It was, you know, it's not. I don't want to sound like I'm defending it at all, but it's no. just it's just the way things were. You know, yeah, it's just it's, it was just like a sign of the times, really. I mean, like we said when we talked about an adventure in space and time, when you see like all the people smoking, yeah, it's like the fuck, you know. It's like it was just it's just unfortunately how it was those days. But uh, never mind. Yeah, it's one of those things that you kind of have to just say that was the man, but I can still enjoy that the mm. work he made. So yeah. You know. Okay, so number 48, we're on to Regeneration. Mm. Without Regeneration, we wouldn't be discussing the show's 50th anniversary. Yet in 1966, the first Regeneration did not go swimmingly. BBC archives show a generally negative reaction to the second Doctor. Most of the comments centred around Patrick Troughton as Doctor Who. Much of this took critical form. Though there is some positive comment in the report, words <laughs> the words in idiotic new character playing for laughs and his character's peculiar and un- unappealing way are among the choice criticisms. My personal favourite is, I feel the character's over-exaggerated, whimsical even, hindsight, eh? Yeah, <laughs> hindsight. Yeah, um, Matt Smith would like to have a word with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, um, I can sort of... I can understand like why people would be like so sort of taken aback because I mean this this was a brand new concept back in the day. Absolutely. This this was I mean, I don't even know if there was anything like like it at the time. You know? It's 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 such Well, it's still unique. Yeah. I mean you still you get the whole things of like in soaps that if you have kids they get too old and you replace them with other people and just mm-hmm. don't talk about it <clears throat> or you in sort of, like I say, in, in soaps and other dramas, you know, mm-hmm. this happens a lot, um, replacing one actor with another. Yeah. Um, but to really just come out and say, yeah, this is a thing that's going to happen, mm-hmm. it's genius, but it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not like, you know, like whenever you get a new James Bond, it's not like, oh, it's, you know, there's been a lot of like people who try and like say, oh, you know, James Bond's just a code name, and there's there are all these different guys, but they all share the same code name. It's just like, well, they're, they're really essentially the same character. It's just a different dude who's playing it, and they never really go, okay, well, it's he's had like, because I mean, did you ever hear about um, when they were making on the Majesty's Secret Service and yeah. they cast uh, George Lazenby as Bond? Yeah. The idea was he was going to have plastic surgery. 
<laughs> yeah, I've heard these, yeah. So, so I've recently rewatched all the Bonds. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's... Um, you know, and they, they sort of really point to it as well when he says never happened to the other fellow mm-hmm. in, in the into camera. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's it's kind of one of these things that because they drew attention to it and mm. they had no choice but to. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if, if Doctor Who was a new show that only just started in two thousand and five mm-hmm. and they you know, Chris Freckleson was the first doctor and then they changed him to tenant and this has been the first time we'd ever seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. I think Wow, I mean, I can't even imagine how how that would go down with the internet now. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, the hell, you know. I mean, there has been recasting now. I mean, uh, didn't the poor lad who was the first guy who was Spartacus in Spartacus Blood and Sand, he passed away. Mm. So they had to recast his role or end the show. Mm-hmm. So they recast it and it went on, for it carried on for longer. Yeah. Because, you know, for a lot of reasons, they wanted to honour the... the the fella's memory who came before him yeah um so it, it does happen it has precedent um but to yeah to really make an integral part of the show mm-hmm. um you know it, it for now obviously it's a work of genius but mm-hmm. those criticisms don't they seem familiar yeah <laughs> <laughs> so number 47 patrick troughton's affairs a recent biography of Troughton revealed that his personal life was chaotic, littered with affairs, covers-ups and indiscretions. The second Doctor was a very tactile man, and his attitude caused difficulties for his wives and children. Also, he liked to pee on golf courses, but that's not so much controversial, it's just a bit weird. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be honest, until I'd read this, I'd never actually heard anything about, like, Patrick Troughton's affairs. You know, it's like I just—I know he had two families at one mm. point. Yeah, I—I I, I generally didn't know word one about this. Yeah. So um, it's, it's I mean, kind of see our comments about William Hartnell. Yeah. You know, I mean, it must have been—I—I I wouldn't have liked to have been, you know, one of his kids and find out there's another bunch of kids with another wife somewhere. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of the personal and and the art is kind of two different things to me. Mm-hmm. So you know, if if that's the way the man wanted to conduct his business, then that's it, really. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. Again, just going back to what the, what we said about William Hartnell, they covered it up pretty well, and well, you know, not necessarily covered it up, but you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah. Well, enough. <laughs> Okay, so 46 is Toberman. Mm. The character of Toberman is written as deaf and wearing... Well, sorry, the character of Toberman was written as deaf and wearing a hearing aid. Roy Stewart was cast, but the hearing aid and the deafness was lost en route to the screen. Thus, we have a black man who barely speaks a word and is treated as a primitive and a slave. When showing Tomb of the Cybermen to people for the first time, the explanation of he was meant to be deaf really doesn't help. Yeah... Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's kind of one of those things that I I love Tomb of the Cybermen, mm-hmm. but I but, yeah the Toberman stuff makes me cringe. Oh yeah, it's like oh fuck man, you know fuck me yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think it would have worked better if they like kept that, like the the deafness and the hearing aid because that that would have. That would have been made more sense, and it would have been probably a bit more sort of I don't know necessarily inclusive. I I can't can't try quite quite think of the word I'm looking for, but you know what I mean. It's like well, it would have been more progressive. I mean, yes. I'm, not, I'm not sure that we we've had you know never had a deaf character in it before or no. up to no. this point now. 
I don't think so. Um, but yeah, it, it sort of knowing knowing that piece of information. Um, but it's kind of the, one of those awful cliches that you have mm. this big, big, silent black guy who's the heavy, mm-hmm. you know, and chucks a Cyberman over his head and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's just one of the kind of nasty, embarrassing relics of the day. Unfortunately, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, it it is it is one of those things that it it kind of it does with with modern with a modern eyes looking back on it, mm-hmm. it does mar the episode. Yeah. Okay, moving swiftly along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dear me. Number forty-five: questions in test tubes, scientists in miniskirts. Barry Letts and Terence Dix inherited the character of Liz Shaw from the previous production team. As a scientist, albeit one whose interest in miniskirts coincided with being drafted into a top-secret military organisation, it was felt her character made it harder to provide exposition. As a result, she was replaced by someone who could pass the Doctor his test tubes and tell him how brilliant he was. This continues to be a source of debate, as it implies Doctor Who's female lead role cannot be classed as anything but intellectually limited, proposing characteristics such as fightiness, brave, bravery, fightiness, curiosity, and fightiness as positive alternatives. <laughs> uh, feistiness, yeah. Yeah, feistiness. Uh, yeah, po- yeah. yeah. Poor old Liz. Um, I, this is something that I think I've talked about before in that kind of how badly Liz Shaw's character was let down by mm. the production team. Um you know, you wish she could have stuck around, but I think also there's the issue that Caroline John was pregnant as well at the time mm. that she, you know, found out that she was pregnant fairly shortly into the show, into her, into her, um, Tenure. her time. Mm. So obviously that would have changed things as well had she been, had she stayed on longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of one of those. It's it's it is a shame that I think if if um, Liz's character had stuck around and they'd made it rather than just going oh, and giving up mm-hmm. um, as Barry, Liz, Parry and Terence did on mm-hmm. her character if they kind of stuck to their guns and um, kept her around mm-hmm. it would have set more of a precedent to have characters like that as the show went on mm. but um, I think that people forget about Zoe yeah yeah, uh, I mean, in that she was considerably cleverer than the Doctor, mm-hmm. and um, often kind of uh, sort of outsmarted him and resolved issues, um, but didn't because Wendy Padbury's cute. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of didn't stick out as much. Mm. I think the thing with Zoe was, um, yeah, she was really bright, but she was sort of like um, not necessarily a slave to logic, but. Um, she she like based a lot of her stuff on that, and you know the the doctor was always sort of you know said uh, more to it than logic. Yeah, so I mean, she's she sort of portrayed as being one of these people who's very clever but naive about the greater world around because she spent her entire life in academia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean with this show, I mean it was a it was a great idea to have somebody you know of like of an equal standing to the doctor, but I don't. Hmm. It's like I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with like them. Like you, you go from Lishaw to Joe Grant. You yeah, know what I mean, it's archetypal scream and fall down companion. Yeah, but it's sort of like 
I don't know. I think it's maybe because uh, like at the time, the idea was the Doctor is supposed to be, you know, the hero. You know, yeah. and to have somebody on equal standing with her and sort of like be a woman maybe was just a bit... I don't know. It's like... Well, so I think it's it, it's sort of tricky in that you were dealing with a whole new way that the show was being made in mm. that they were going much more towards a kind of action kind of like persuaders and the saint kind of idea, mm-hmm. interpretation of the show. So if you're going to position the Doctor as being earthbound and as unit scientific advisor, mm-hmm. you can't have two scientific advisors. Yeah. Um, so that's the that's the thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, if they'd somehow switched it that Liz was a scientific advisor to unit and the Doctor came in as, like, her companion or mm-hmm. something, I don't know, it's... It's kind of you can't have two people basically fulfilling the same role. Yeah, I thought it might have been interesting, like if she'd been the scientific advisor in situ, and then the doctor came in and sort of superseded her, and she was like had a bit of a chip on her shoulder about that. Yeah, like, absolutely. You know, I think that would have been a bit interesting, but I don't know if that would have. It might have like worked over like had the plan always been for Liz Shaw to be in for this one season. It might have worked a bit better because at least then. She's not like an ongoing companion. You don't have like a sixth Doctor and Perry sort of situation. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. But. Um, I mean, I've, and as well, we're sort of you sort of can't help but come at it as a modern TV viewer, mm-hmm. in that you wouldn't, you don't necessarily have, you know, any sort of setup like this, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't position characters in this way. No. Do you see what I mean? I mean, yeah. but as well, I think it also comes down to the fact that when you get unfortunately when you have female characters in doctor who and other things mm-hmm. that are you know as equal to the male protagonist you're still going to get negative reaction i mean look at the i mean in this country i think she's immensely popular in other places but the fallout and response to river song mm. i think it sort of it brings in this fact that you the doctor is the man alone and mm-hmm. to have an equal to him yeah is it kind of it put I don't know what it is I don't mind I don't care about it but mm-hmm. it seems to have a negative reaction through the, the the fan base I don't know what it is yeah I don't know whether it's just sort of so ingrained these days you know yeah absolutely you know it's one of these things that I think's gonna change as time goes on mm-hmm. but in 1970 when Liz was introduced and there was so the show was so different to how it'd been the year before mm-hmm. it, it was kind of like and as well with Terence Dix, I don't like to speak ill of the man, but he's he's a bloke who's very much women in their place type of thing. Mm. So unfortunately, you're in in the seventies as it was then, it, it 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 just couldn't be the way that we would want it now as as a TV audience these days. Yeah, it was it was a bit more progressive to have Liz there, but at the same time, it 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 was just like incremental. Yeah, I mean that that role could have easily been a bloke, mm-hmm. and it might well have been in some other draft somewhere, you know, yeah. that I've never seen. So, yeah. okay, number forty-four: Terror of the Autons, Police, and Troll Dolls. <laughs> Not content with revealing policemen to be blank-faced, gun-handed Autons, Robert Holmes further destroys your sanity by making you afraid of flowers, chairs, and your teddy bear. Amazingly, there were complaints. Barry Letts took these on board rather than issue a statement demanding that, <laughs> rather than demanding that the nation's children man the hell up. Um, 
yeah, terrifying yeah. things. <laughs> Those. Yeah, the... I think um, I think Moffat's a graduate from that uh, school, isn't he? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. The scare the shit out of kids' school. Um, yeah, it's just one of those things that um, as we as we progress through the list, um, the scariness of Doctor Who is going to become an issue. Mm-hmm. But um, now, particularly in Terror of the Autons, that troll doll thing is horrible, mm. um, and deliberately so. It's not meant to be pleasant. It's you yeah. know, it's it's kind of one of these things that I think that these whole stories about kids were scared of daffodils in the street and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a little bit over exaggerated. Yeah. But but think of the children though, Emma. I did, and I want to scare the shit out of them. Shut up. (laughs) Look, you know, it's one of these things of, look, when I was a kid, I watched things that were wildly inappropriate, and I saw Mm -hmm. things which scared me, but it's it's one of these things, you know. It's part of the formative experience of being a child, and a lot of kids love it. Yeah, I think a lot of kids... They love being scared. I think a lot of people don't give kids credit. I think a lot of kids know that, yeah, it's scary, but it's not real. Yeah, I mean, and as well, you know, scared of innocuous things, not on TV. You know, Mm -hmm. I was... I was scared of, <laughs> I was scared of things like grot bags from um, Pink Wim. I mean, because you know she was scary, but it was mm. a kids' show. I, I was. You know? do, you, do you want to hear something really weird? Go on then. You know catchphrase. Yeah. You know Mr. Chips. You were scared of Mr. Chips. Yes, you fucking oh, terrifying little shit. My brother was scared of Banana Man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's one of these things. It's just kids are scared of weird things mm-hmm. that you don't expect anyway. And some of these things that you deliberately set out as inverted commas scary, mm-hmm. don't care about it. Yeah. So, you know, I just think that it's it, it the, the, the few complaints you get is it's worth it for kind of the warmth which you look back on being scared by these things yeah. almost. Because I look back at the things I was scared of and go, oh, that was so funny. Or, oh, absolutely. You know, talk to my parents about it and they were like, oh, you know, you were scared of this really weird thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not like I'm down the shrink's office talk, worrying about stuff that I was scared of when I was four. Yeah. And I don't think anyone is. So mm. there you go. Number 43. We've got the wrong Sarah Jane. For years, it was known that another actress had initially won the role of Sarah Jane Smith and that Liz Slater had come in after it hadn't worked out. Research for the Invasion of the Dinosaurs DVD discovered in fact, it was in fact April Walker and it was because John Pertwee felt he was, she was physically imposing and had poor chemistry with him. Barry lets that walk go, paying her in full for a Stephen Aladdin contract. Yeah, I mean, the the whole someone else was cast as Sarah Jane Mm -hmm. was a story that I heard, you know, for years before it was finally revealed who it was. Mm -hmm. Because the the, the speculation was around who it actually was. Yeah. Um, Because it was sort of well known that someone else had been Sarah Jane before the Sarah Jane we knew. Mm -hmm. But no one knew exactly who it was. So when it was finally revealed to be April Walker, people sort of went, oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's not like she was. She sort of, um, you know, rolled up and Barry Letts told her to sing a rook, and she didn't get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's she got she got paid for d- doing nothing yeah. essentially, and um, yeah, it was it was fair. And um, you know, by the time season eleven rolled around, John Pertwee had that level of say over what was happening in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can so I understand like the poor chemistry bit because that that doesn't surprise me because I'm a huge fan of Back to the Future. And, you know, as it's pretty much well known nowadays that um, Michael J. Fox wasn't originally cast as Marty. He wasn't cast as Marty from the get-go as Eric Stoltz. Yeah. And as it turned out, um, he just didn't, Stoltz just didn't, like, like fit the part just right. So I think they still got paid for it and they just went, okay, you know what, thanks, but 
you know, I think we've, we're going to have to try something else. And so they ended up uh, casting Michael J. Fox and, you know, history was made. So, you know, it's like, it, this sort of doesn't really surprise me because it, it just, it, no. it's just sort of thing. It's just... It, that's acting. I think yeah. that it happens. It, obviously, we... I think it happens a lot more than we sort of realise. Mm. It's only really these famous roles. I mean, the other famous one is Genevieve Bujold being cast as Captain Janeway before Kate Mulgrew. Mm. And then it was, it, in that case, it was her who said, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. That, you know, she couldn't, I mean, the official line is that she couldn't stand up to the, you know, 18 hour days and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing, which is, you know, fair enough. And what the actual truth about, that is i don't know but uh, Mm. again it's lots of stories but you know i think that's just that's just acting and it's not like april walker was diddled out of any money or left on bad terms it was just a case of barry saying well you know thanks but no thanks Mm -hmm. here's the money for your contract yeah off you go and as far as i know i mean i haven't read any interviews that says april walker is like devastated by this Mm -hmm. yeah I mean, like you say, it's just. I think it's just one of these things that happen in like, uh, in production. I mean, because I mean, just recently, look at like sort of the revolving door of casting for the Fifty Shades of Grey movie. Like anybody fucking cares. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that, I think but... everyone on planet Earth's been cast in Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm waiting for my agent to call. <laughs> mm. Yeah. All right. So, um, related. <laughs> Forty-two. Pertwee, money, and leaving. The team was breaking up. Roger Delgado had died. Terence Dix, Barry Letts and Katie Manning were leaving. John Pertwee decided to leave as well, partly to avoid being typecast. The man himself also stated that his request for a raise had been turned down, leading to speculation that his departure was motivated by money. More likely, he was planning on leaving anyway, but thought, what the hell? Yeah, again, it um, with this story, I think I've heard about six different versions of this story mm-hmm. from various people. Um, but yeah, I think that the idea that basically the band was breaking up mm-hmm. and Pertwee was like, well, seems like a good time to move on. Yeah. Um, so why not ask for a bit more cheeky money before mm-hmm. I go? Because I think he's kind of one of those class, he's one of the people who came out of rep and you never know when your next meal's coming from. So yeah. get as much money as you can while you can get it. So um, while he had the clout, as we saw in the previous entry, Mm -hmm. to be saying things like, I don't want this person cast, why not ask for some more money if you're going to go anyway? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, the the whole typecasting thing, I I think he's probably one of the few Doctor Who actors who managed to sort of get away from it slightly because, I mean, you've got like Wurzel Gummidge and then um, other sorts of roles he did. I mean, he never really, he was always still the third Doctor, but he managed to have some other iconic roles yeah. on top of it so i think he's sort of like he's one of the few who sort of got away with it you know what i mean yeah i think you know he was he was always very busy mm-hmm. um yeah like exactly like you say i mean when i was a kid and we're both the same age mm-hmm. he was Wurzel gummage much before he was yeah. doctor who you know um again a thing i was terrified of Wurzel gummage um <laughs> It's, it's, you know, he he got away with it, you know, and you could argue that he chose the right time to go. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he had a good long run. Also, I mean, physically, you know, he's healthy, couldn't do as much of the stunt work because he had yeah. a bad back. Um, so, you know, he made a, he made a good decision, I think, as far as as far as his time to go. And, um, you know, I, I if I was in his position, if you know, it's again the old hindsight thing of we know now that he went on to have 
a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But at the time, he could not have known that, you know, as far as he could say, this could be the last his last job ever. So why not try and get, you know, a few more coins in your pocket? Mm -hmm. Number 41. He's a Chinese. At the time of the talents of Wang Chiang, it was not unknown for Caucasian actors to play characters of other ethnic backgrounds using makeup. It had been common practice previously. Now, though, it looks both racist and desperately unconvincing. The fact that a group of Chinese criminals features one Asian actor and then some stuntmen and makeup makes the distinction all the more apparent. Lee Sen Cheng comments, I understand that we all look alike, and that's even more untrue when John Wu was standing next to Pat Gorman. Now, I mean, they even said this on the DVD commentary. He's like, yeah. you cannot get away with this these days. No, absolutely not. You can't get away with it. But unfortunately, it, it's again, we're looking back on it with modern eyes. Mm-hmm. This was standard practice. Yeah. And... You know, we disagree with it, but there it is. It's on screen. We can't deny that it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can we can disapprove of that decision, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I think that everybody does. Yeah, I, I don't want to like sound like I'm standing up for, it, but at the same time, there was some like really good bits with Lee Sen Lee Sen Cheng. You know, like the uh, you know at the end of his life when he's dying, and he sort of like goes on like I, like I can see, you know, my my ancestors like beckoning towards me it's it's like it's kind of it's it's one of these like few moments where actually yeah it is really kind of racist but there's like just like a nugget of like like a nice little bit in it somewhere you know what i mean yeah i mean that's the thing it's it's a brilliant episode mm-hmm. the whole of talons of wen chiang is is a great serial mm-hmm. it, it's probably up in it's probably up in a lot of people's top 10 mm-hmm. um so, you know, you kind of, if you want to, you can watch it and, you know, enjoy it. Because, I mean, it's a great performance. Mm-hmm. Let's not take away from the man. Yeah. The guy does a great bit of acting. Mm-hmm. But you it, it you sort of like, do you let the the fact that they've made this decision, which, mm-hmm. you know, went on a lot in the 70s when this was made, yeah. to mar what the man did, you know, it, it's really tricky. Yeah. Um, you know, but it is it is racist and mm-hmm. it is it is horrible. But you know, it's one of the, one of the many things of you know. There's a lot of media out there where the the same thing happened, mm-hmm. and we can't undo it. It's happened. Yeah. So you know, the important thing is that it doesn't happen anymore, which it doesn't. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Again, it's just it's just like it was just a sign of the times. It was just it was yeah. sort of like the done thing. I mean, it doesn't make it any better. But at the same time, you could probably argue that there were like worse things, like far well, worse things. Yeah, far, far worse things, you know, and it was kind of unfortunately the the kind of mysterious evil Chinese wizard bloke was mm-hmm. a trope that went, oh, you know, Fu Manchu, the oh, Mandarin, yeah. you know, it, it, it goes on. Yeah, I mean, I'm rem- I still remember like the, the shit song about uh, Ben Kingsley being cast as the Mandarin for Mandarin, Iron Man 3. Yeah. But you know, as it turns out, they kind of had like a like a get out clause, like built into the script. Because spoilers, if you haven't seen Iron Man three, he's not really he's just a bloke playing this character. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I don't know. It kind of sort of like I don't know if it necessarily acknowledges like sort of this this old this practice as it was back in the times. But it's like. You know, it wasn't really like the intention from the get go. Ben Kingsley wasn't supposed to be this like Asian fella. No. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's kind of it, it's kind of one of these things that it 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 was just like you say, it's a sign of the times. Mm-hmm. It has happened. You know, the alternative is that you take every copy of the Talons of Wen Chiang and erase it from history, which would be 
I think that's that would be unfortunate because it's aside from that, it's really actually bloody good. I mean, I don't know the giant rat movies not so much, but you know what I mean. Well, I mean, you know, as well, looking forward in in thirty years, are we going to be looking at twenty four? And every Arabic bloke in it is a terrorist. <laughs> yeah. And going, mm. oh my God, you know, it's, yeah. you know, the neocon nightmare that is 24 and other such sundry shows, you know. I, I wonder how we're going to look back on these in 30, 40 years. Mm. All right then. Oh, blimey. Number 40, Hinchcliffe and Holmes versus Mary Whitehouse. <clears throat> In making the show for the intelligent 14-year-old, but without actually telling anyone in advance, the early Tom Baker stories teeters on the edge of what was acceptable for a family show. The knock-on effect of White House's Won't Someone Please Think of the Children protestations was that Hinchcliffe decided to overspend on some episodes in his final series, meaning that Mary Whitehouse not only effectively curtailed the Hinchcliffe era, but weakened the Williams one before it even begun. Bloody Mary Whitehouse. <laughs> I mean, I, I think even if... Even if you're listening to our podcast and you're very much like a fledgling Doctor Who fan, you'll have heard something about this. I can't yeah. imagine you can't not have heard something about this if you've been like looking up like the classic series because this was, this is probably out of the entire list, the probably the most infamous one, arguably. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I'm surprised it's as low as number 40 mm. because the impact that Mary Whitehouse, and I think it's the National Television and Viewers Association, I mm -hmm. think she set up, something like that. And the impact not only they had on Doctor Who, but all of telly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you can trace, you know, the video nasty scare back yeah. to her directly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it kind of this whole censorship and seeing people as empty vessels which television fills with information mm -hmm. that passively just accept what they see yeah is you know or that this whole idea especially in this country stems directly from this woman mm -hmm. and she had no idea what she was talking about yeah i mean what's yeah what, what, i mean most of the time she had never seen what she was complaining about mm. yeah i mean what's even more surprising about our organization it was it wasn't an actual sort of proper like organization it was just like the sort of like group of people it's like you know like it wasn't like a properly sanctioned no it was thing. basically a letter writing campaign yeah unit it's, it's basically i think I, what can i say for americans i mean i think the closest thing unless there's something nice in america i think tipper gore and the imposing of parental advisory stickers on cds mm-hmm that's sort of the nearest equivalent I can think of in America. Yeah, probably. Or either that or, you know, imagine the tea party, but for people who watch telly. <laughs> that's essentially it. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, Mary Whitehouse's protestations and the fact that she, for some reason she became immensely powerful. I don't oh. really understand how... You know, like I've seen television dramas about her and watched documentaries about, you know, the time. And you just think, how did she manage to end up with so much clout? Mm. You know, it, it it's sort of mystifying to me. Um, but, yeah, it, it did change the way that Doc, I think it's, it sort of sent Doctor Who on a different course. Mm. And I think we st we see the repercussion of that today because I think if, the, if Mary Whitehouse had never existed so to speak um you know <laughs> the show murder. might have gone in a completely different direction <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i the, 
there are like I mean, so at the end of the Deadly Assassin, which is one of the um, one, yeah, yeah, the one she complained about, where you see the Doctor drowning. I can sort of understand that one because I mean that's quite a horrific image for you, for like kids, just like see the hero, you know, on the verge of actual death. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like, holy shit. I mean, it's like, I, you know, this thing about Mary White, Mary White as an organization, it gave people no credit. Mm. You know, the whole, I mean, this, the scene you're talking about there, her main complaint was people are going to think that he's been drowning for a week until they mm. turn back on. And you think, oh, please, no. nobody thinks that. Jesus Christ. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's kind of like I say that. She viewed people as like empty vessels, which mm. accept what they see on television with no sheeple. With no with sheeple, essentially. Yeah, I know. And there's um there's a video nasties podcast which mm. I listen to, which has a Mary Whitehouse quote audio quote at the beginning where it says about you know I don't need to see yeah what's happening in these shows. You know, like a lot of these things she was hearing second, third, fourth hand. Yeah, and then so. complaining about it, and then from up on high at the BBC. They went, oh, shit. It was, you know, it was, I say, she never, most of the things that she was complaining about, she never saw a lick of. <laughs> so, you know, wow. it, it's one of those things. It set Doctor Who off and a lot of other things on a different course. I mean, I don't disagree with ratings. Mm-hmm. I think should things you should see things which are age appropriate. Yeah. You know, it should be you should be informed if you're a parent or a yeah. guardian or whatever. You should be informed about what you're happy with letting your kids see. But I think mm. it's down to individual choice. Yeah. You know, because kids are going to, kids are all different. They're not, they don't just fit in one bracket that says no. all 12 year olds are okay with this, whereas all 15 year olds are okay with this and all, you know, under that are all fine with the PG stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw the PG stuff that terrified me. Oh, yeah. But saw 12 stuff which didn't bother me. Mm. So as a parent, you know your child and you want to be informed and, you know, you've got a, you should have things which enable you to make an informed choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't disagree with ratings and warnings per se, but mm-hmm. I do disagree with the Mary Whitehouse thing of like ban this sick filth bullshit. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's get away from that crazy yeah. mare. So number 39, the BBC versus Graham Williams. Graham Williams struggle at times as a producer of Doctor Who. Not only had a cut, had he had to cope with BBC edicts demanding that he rectify the overspending in an adult tone of the previous regime, but he also had to cope with inf- inflation, strikes, and Tom Baker. As a result, his era is saddled with a reputation as cheap and cheerful, where in many respects it was a massive battle to get anything on screen at all. In some cases, they didn't succeed. Yeah, I'll say, unfortunately, the Graham Williams era kind of is wildly overshadowed by the Hinchcliffe era. Mm which I think a lot of Doctor Who fans, myself included, mm-hmm. think of as the, truly the greatest era of the show. Yeah. Um, like you say, Tom Baker is beginning to become a prima donna. Mm-hmm. The strike situation within the BBC had become ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, like you say, the inflation had struck hard, so everything was much more expensive to make. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I kind of actually agree with that last line, that the fact that it was just such a battle to get anything on the screen at all mm-hmm. um and i think that they've got a picture of um the invisible enemy there yeah which is notoriously one of the shittiest monsters they've ever put out <laughs> um, but there's there's you know there's good stuff in the williams era yeah i mean um was it the williams era where we had the sun makers yeah yeah i i really like the sun makers actually I, I thought it was a nice little sort of dig at 
Yeah, so like, you know, well, yeah, you, can't, you can't pay the taxes and all that. I mean, was that, um, I'm trying to remember, was that uh, Robert Holmes? Was that a Bob Holmes one? Yeah, I think it's a Bob Holmes joint, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, because if it wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm surprised because that's, you know, that's, that's one of Bob Holmes' big middle fingers to things, you know. Yeah. Um, I just think, you know, it, it, it it's kind of greatness through adversity. I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of good stuff to enjoy in that era. But like you say, it, you know, it, it was overshadowed by what had come before and mm-hmm. the difficulties in production. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which. <laughs> Uh, 38, it's not finished, it's finished. Sharda is unfinished, it always will be. Industrial action made it impossible to complete, but since then we have had a VHS edition with linking narration, an 8th Doctor webcast, a Gareth Roberts novelisation, and an animated version intended for DVD release. Ian Levine put a lot of effort and time into his version, but for various reasons it was decided that it wasn't acceptable. Cue lots of grumbling, capital letters, and online malcontent. Um... Yeah, the the Ian Levine trying to make his own version of mm-hmm. this. Um, I don't want to touch with a barge pole. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it's it's kind of one of these things of yeah, Charlie's unfinished and for lots of reasons. But we're lucky to have any sort of footage of it at all. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those things of along with Scream of the Schalke, it's kind of like one of those curios. Yeah. Um. Okay, I'm going to have to be kind of honest here. Mm. I don't really get the whole like love for Sharda. No, it's it's um like I say, it's because it's un but because it's unfinished, it's got this whole mythology around it mm. that's it's you no, know, it's this great lost classic. Yeah. Whereas I think if it had survived, you know, don't think anyone really care about it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got um the the CD version of the Eighth Doctor take on it. Yeah. And I liked it fine, but I I was sort of like going oh. Okay. Yeah. All right. I I don't know. I I don't know whether it was just sort of like it had been sort of so bigged up by the fandom that it was sort of didn't really sort of like not necessarily meet expectations, but it's like I was expecting this sort of massive great thing, and it's it's perfectly fine. Um, you can still like you can still tell it was originally a fourth Doctor, especially like the eighth Doctor like webcast version. You can still tell it was a lot for like for the. For the, written for the fourth Doctor because you have the bit where um, he's reading from the book and it's, it's just like and it's sort of it's it's also a sort of thing like this is this was Douglas Adams yeah and I don't know what it is about maybe I'm just getting old and crotchety but the more I sort of like think about Douglas Adams these days the more I sort of I don't I don't dislike his work. But it's sort of like it's sort of lost lost its lot of luster to me. Yeah. Like I was reading the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy again a couple of months back, and before then I always used to like laugh out loud at some of the passages in it. But this time I was going, yeah. You know, it's like he's um, getting on, mate. That's all it is. Yeah, I think like in terms of like things like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I I genuinely, I I honestly do feel this that people just like I think we need to let it go. Yeah, because I mean, it don't get me wrong; it's a great book, but you know the the amount of times it gets like done. I mean, did you see that they were doing uh, they were doing a tour with like the radio cast, and they're like yeah reenacting, and like they're gonna have all these guests to be the voice of the book, and Colin Baker was one of them. Yeah, but then the tour got cancelled. Yeah, like 
it's sort of like that was sort of like the moment where I just thought, okay, I think we need to sort of like let Hitchhiker not necessarily die, but I think everybody needs to sort of like just back off a bit because you know, I mean, sure, like you can like quote it and all that, you know, he's he knows where his towel is and all that, but it's like I don't know. I, I just it's just sort of the it's just the joke's worn a bit thin. Yeah. Okay. You know, so you know, I don't. You know, it. If. It... So, would you want to move on to the next part? Yeah. I think it's going to link into your thoughts. Yeah. Number thirty-seven. Stop that! It's silly. Douglas Adams' tenure as script editor is typified by two things. Firstly, there's some glorious bouts of imagination fed, tied up with strong science fiction concepts. Secondly, the levels of silliness occasionally veer into the unacceptable. Partly, this is down to Tom Baker, who by this stage felt untouchable, and his willingness to muck about rubs off the rest of his ca- rest of the cast, including his drinking buddy Graham Crowden. Doctor Who attracts people who want things to be taken very seriously, indeed, begging the question of what they were held in watching the Doctor Who, and this approach was a step too far for some. My dreams of conquest! <laughs> you will die for your interference! <laughs> I, I love the horns of Nymon. I can't help it. It's, it's yeah. crap, but it's amazing it's, crap. it's terrible but brilliant you know yeah. it's kind of you know it's it's, it's well Graham it's exactly, Crown just does it he it's just exactly it. what you were saying though just mm-hmm. a minute ago that your level of enjoyment is how much you like douglas adams adams's humor mm-hmm. and how much you think it belongs in the show and mm-hmm. i think unfortunately as well by this point you're starting to get some very serious fans yeah who think this is a serious show yeah now, d- don't get me wrong. I love levity in Doctor Who because obviously this is not this is not the show. I, I kind of like hate it when it sort of takes itself too seriously. Like yeah, they have like Tom Baker's last season when they were all doing like all for like the the hardcore serious signs like tachyons and the leisure hive, and it's like I don't even know. if and look, fucking tachyons look, this is like watching a funeral. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, the the sort of example I would put forth as a being a bit too silly during this point of its time is the creature from the pit. I think it's I think it's creature of the pit um, from the pit when the doctor's climbing down the mine shaft. Yep. And he like takes a book out of his pocket uh, um, about like mountaineering and he reads it and he realizes it's in Tibetan. And so he puts that book down and he pulls out another book which says to how to speak type Tibetan and it's just like oh really you know it's just I don't, I don't mind daft jokes, but I don't. I, again, I think it's, I think it's just sort of. Um... So it's kind of too much in yeah. that you know if if you're watching a Douglas Adams comedy or if you're mm. watching if you know if you're reading Dirt Gently's Holistic Detective Agency or mm. you know the Hitchhiker stuff, you expect it to be a comedy first, sci-fi later. Mm-hmm. You know, with this, he's you know. It, I, I say I'm just like you. I love my levity in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I think it should be fun and scary and everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. But you don't want it to go too far the other way. And I yeah. think that you know Douglas Adams sort of felt more and more free reign to sort of put his comedy stylings into the show. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and you know it. It just it it kind of comes off as forced. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's what it is. It's a bit forced. It's like, you know, um, I think. Oh yeah, it was. It was Holden's Nyman. I think it was um, one of the, one of the, you know, like one of the cliffhangers that the Doctor like takes out 
like a, a best dog ribbon and pins it on K9. It's it's just I don't know. I think there was I, I don't mind like the comedy as long as it's I don't know. It's like it's it's almost kind of like God. I'm going to sound like one of those fans, aren't I? Yeah, it's it's difficult to criticize it without sounding like one of those fans. But yeah. I think you can. It's okay to find portions of it too silly because they are, mm-hmm. and that's it. You know, it doesn't diminish you know your own enjoyment. And you know, as well, you get in in his in his tenure, you get absolute guff like the horns of Nymon. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's kind of as fans we can watch it because it's so rubbish. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of. It, but as a new fan coming watching the horns of nylon, I can't even imagine yeah. like going, "Oh my god!" You know. It's... But but by the same token, Douglas Adams wrote the Pirate Planet, and I and I really like the Pirate Planet. I mean, yes, there's a few jokes. I think there was one of the jokes about um, like a like a travelator or something, and the it's like the Doctor's line is like you just knew he sort of like thought, "Oh, that was a good line," and he just transplanted that into the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, but. I don't know. I just I, I really like the Pirate Planet because you know the the performance of the captain is just so completely mental. But what's great about it is when the Polyphase Avatron, you know, his robot powered of death, um, gets off by canine, it, the the switch is flipped and then it's it becomes actually quite scary and dangerous. You know, when mm-hmm. he's forcing the Doctor to walk the plank, you know, it's like. You know, the concept's very simple. You walk off the plank, fall down a thousand feet, dead. You know, it's like yes. like all the bluster and that's just gone. And, you know, it's like like the silliness has evaporated now. He's just ready out. He's out for blood. Mm. You know, so I don't I don't know. It's it's very. I would say I think it's very personal. It's mm. like if you either dig it or you don't. But um yeah, I think since fandoms become a lot more serious with like mm-hmm. a capital like F for fandom, mm-hmm. um, I think that like you say that the amount of people who seem to forget that Doctor Who is not a hard sci-fi show, no, <laughs> um, and thus has funny bits in it, kind mm-hmm. of really over the top despise it, and mm-hmm. you know I think it's unnecessary. Yeah. Okay, so thirty-six. Tom and Lala sitting in a tree. Doctor Companion romances aren't unexpected anymore, but there still remains only one that took place off-screen. Tom Baker and Ollawall's off-on-off relationship appears to be digital rather than analogue, and its state affected a lot of their scenes together. The City of Death, where they run around Paris holding hands, basically all of the Doctor Romana shipping comes from here, and then the State of Decay, where they can barely look at each other. Anyone who's heard her on a DVD commentary will know that Ward's scorn could power the national newspaper for months. I think it was yeah. a small city, actually. Yeah, wow. Lala Ward, not a happy lady. No. <laughs> and with some justification. I mean, mm-hmm. there was there was a, a commentary I heard of her where she's acting in a... She's basically a two-shot with Tom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the way through she's saying, he, he's barely looking at me. Yeah, he's not no even looking contact. at me. Yeah. yeah, no eye contact. Yeah. And they yeah. had a very tumultuous relationship. Mm-hmm. And mean, this is well known. I mean, you, you can just... You can... It's, it's so bleedingly obvious though that's the thing it's yeah, like um, the, it's almost you know. like they couldn't i i think lala ward might have like wanted to try and sort of like be a bit more professional about it but tom just wouldn't wouldn't you know so it's like it's like so clearly obvious you can see like how the relationship is at this this point of the filming you know de- depending on how they i mean like stated okay i think if i remember right it starts off like that but by the end 
you can sort of like tell they're actually getting on a bit better again. Yeah, it's sort of one of those horrible things of like once you once you know a bit more of the background mm-hmm. when you're watching these episodes, it's actually a bit uncomfortable. Uh-huh. You know, it's a bit like watching your parents argue. Yeah, <laughs> you it's, know, it's it's, it's kind the business of, and pleasure thing. Yeah, it's really like Ugh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I say, I think it obviously, it affected their on-screen performance. I mean, when mm. they're together, they're great, but when they obviously, they hate each other, it's blatant. Oh, it's icy. Oh, it's uncomfortable. Mm. It's, it's, you know, it's, but the thing of it is, I just, I, I, I like the Doctor and the second Romana. I think it's just because, like, the two Time Lords and she's sort of, like, She's still like the more professional time lord, and he's still yomping about through time and space. But she's sort of like starting to like go, like follow his lead. Do you know what I mean? I think I yeah. I still like the dynamic between them two. But yeah, wow, <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, when when it's really bad, mm-hmm. like um, in the Leisure Hive, it's particularly terrible. Mm. It's like I say, it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, let's put it this way: Lala Ward went on to marry Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Make of that what you will. <laughs> so number thirty-five, out with the old. Kids love K nine, so what better way to bring them on board with the new uber serious version of the show by blowing them up after five minutes? Like K nine, the sonic screwdriver was deemed too useful a device a hindrance to creative storytelling, and and it too had to go. Script editor Christopher. Bidmead's thoughts on the current iteration of the Sonic Screwdriver make for amusing reading. Mm, yeah, I mean, they that that article, that little bit there, actually leaves out what a pain in the ass K nine was as a prop, mm. as well. The, you know, the fact that it wouldn't, it would barely, it barely worked. It was mm. difficult to control. It wouldn't go over anything other than a completely flat surface. Yeah, I mean, even they're not always a completely flat surface. <laughs> So, yeah, getting rid of K9 was not just the thing of, like, it's an easy get out, mm-hmm. which it was to a point, but the fact it was such a colossal pain in their ass. Yeah. I so, think everyone was glad to see it go. Yeah, I, I can't I can't blame them for that one, especially when you, like, hear, like, the behind-the-scenes tales of it. I mean, to, to, I mean this, this list doesn't even include Chameleon, who was an even bigger pain in the ass, and that's only because the poor bloke who designed it and knew how to run it died. And he yeah. never really left any instructions for how it was supposed to. That's why you only get Chameleon really in the King's Demons and then Planet of Fire and then that's it. Yeah, it's sort of just propped up in the corner. Yeah. Yeah, so... um, yeah, and the fact that, you know, there's also the fact that Tom Baker wasn't happy about anything that took the screen time away from him. Mm-hmm. So the fact that K9 going meant that it was more about him made him happy. <laughs> you know, and at that point, anything to stop him from complaining and stropping off and not doing the scenes yeah so what did you feel about um the sonic screwdriver going um see, see i think that i uh, say i think that um i don't mind the sonic it's fine mm-hmm. um you know but uh, equally if they decided they wanted to to sort of get rid of it you know mm-hmm. as well i'm i'm sort of easy either way to be honest i think that it it's if you if you allow it to be using the script in a lazy way mm-hmm. as a script editor, it's your job to send that script back and say this ain't good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than just say, well, we've got a tight production schedule that'll do, and yeah. stick it on screen. So really, I think the fact that you know Christopher Bibmead is complaining about people using the Sonic in a too easy a way that was his job to stop that. Mm-hmm. 
You know, but I mean, when you sort of think about the, the classic Sonic screwdriver, I mean, it was nowhere near as powerful as it has like today. Yeah, you know, we hear the same hear the same raft of complaints about it today. Mm-hmm. So, but by the same token, I can sort of like understand Russell T. Davis wanted to bring it back because what he said was, "You don't want the Doctor to be stopped by a door." Yeah, you know, it's like I don't I don't know. I mean, I I can sort of like see both sides, but at the same time, you kind of you'd rather have the Doctor be able to sort out the big problem rather than oh, we've been locked in this room. I can't get out. Yeah, I can't get out. You know, exactly. You know, you want the doctor running around and taking on the baddies rather than spend a day trying to kick a door down Mm -hmm. or finding a convenient hole at the back. You know, it's um, it's it's kind of one of those things. And to be honest, I think in now with the show as it is, you're never going to lose the Sonic because there's too much money to be made in Sonic toys. Yeah. I really want some of the new ones they're bringing out. They, I think they're doing like the fifth Doctor and eighth Doctor ones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's on the birthday list. Yeah. Okay, so uh, number 34. Stop that. It's also silly, but in a different way. In the response to the silliness that had crept into the program, season 18 went in the opposite direction. This has not only made the show less fun for some people, but also fell prey to the inherent silliness of the show. The problem is that few things are funnier than someone treating something inherently ridiculous with the utmost severity. Hence, we have Logopolis, home to some of the most ludicrous ideas in the show's history, but with an oppressive funereal tone. No amount of Tom Baker looking moody is going to detract from Tegan's bewildering obsession with planes, Adric, can you swim? Or how little sense the master's plan makes. Yeah, they kind of swung from the sublime to the ridiculous on this one, didn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Like I say, Logopolis... You know, is a funeral, but then has also got the washer in it, which mm. makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it went like, too far the other way. Like the leisure hive, they're trying to like do serious, serious science, like by saying, "Oh, tachyons can do this," and yet the Argolans have got these little popple beads on their head that fall off when they're close to death. It's like it, like it's it's all it's borderline schizophrenic. You know what I mean? It's like the 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 sheer tone shift. Mm. Yeah. But, um, oh well. (laughs) Mm. So, number 33, Doable Barkers. H's producer John Nathan Turner and his partner Gary Downey were revealed to have pursued young fans at conventions, some of whom were below the legal age of homosexual consent at the time. The terms for fans they deemed sufficiently attractive was Doable Barkers. This was only revealed in a 2013 biography of J&T, and it made the national press. If it had been reported at the time, it probably would have resulted in conviction, scandal, and potentially cancellation. Would you rather have the 80s Doctor Who or some spare young men and potentially traumatising indignity? Now, I mean, with this with this biography that's come out of JNT, mm-hmm. I remember before it came out that, you know, that basically it came out that this was going to be in it, mm-hmm. and no one knew how true it was. Yeah. And I think that there's still an element of no one really seems to know how true it is now. Mm. So I'm a little bit reticent to comment on it because I'm not sure if it actually happened or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's not it's not um, a secret that JNT and Gary Downey did chat people up mm-hmm. at conventions. And in in the UK, um the the fan scene of Doctor Who, especially back then, there's a lot of gay men. Hmm. So, I mean, um, Chuck tells me stories of going to conventions in the 80s and having to pretend that his mate was his partner so he wouldn't get chatted up at the bar. Um, you know, it's it's kind of one of these things of, you know, it was 
lot of young guys in all in a room together, mm-hmm. you know, and people are sort of out to cut loose and these things happen in yeah. hotels, you know, and it's it's not a secret either. The other stars of the show mm-hmm. would pursue female fans. Yeah. So I don't know. It, it you say I mean um, I don't know what the legal position is on this book. I mean it's come out and it's out there, mm-hmm. but as far as I know, there hasn't been any actual like complaints. There's no lawsuits. No. You know, there's nothing. Not like a Jimmy Savile esque mm. kind of police investigation happening in relation to Doctor Who at the moment in mm-hmm. in, in those times. Um, so I I just don't know. Yeah, let's move on. Okay. Number 32, too many Adricks on the dance floor. With Nissa being added to the roster as a late addition, it was decided that the fifth Doctor's TARDIS was too crowded and one of the three companions had to go. After Peter Davison stated the case for Nissa remaining on board, the axe fell elsewhere. And what an axe. Grown men admit to weeping as those silent credits rolled. Next time you watch Jurassic Park, just remember that none of it would have been possible without your fourth favourite Alzarian teenager. Um... Okay, for the record, I didn't cry at the uh, silent credits. I thought they were incredibly dumb. <laughs> um, no, um, I don't know. I think that a lot of the trauma came the fact that I think a lot of the viewers, kind of similar to Adric's age at the mm-hmm. time, saw a lot of themselves in him. Yeah. And when he died, it kind of, everyone was sort of reeling. But, you know, it's entirely true. It's way too crowded in that TARDIS oh, at that yeah. time. Too well, I mean, many people, not enough lines. Yeah, well, I mean, we've mentioned it before. Like, you see some of the the, the shots of them in the the concert, and they all have to have the face to camera, and it just looks just looks really awkward. So yeah, really stagey. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, to this day, I have to give them props because you know how many you know companions have actually died in well Rory a lot. Well, <laughs> yeah, but you know. Before yeah, that time it was unprecedented. Yeah. I mean, you just you just assume that everyone would make it. Mm. So I mean, it's a, it's a, also it's a hangover of what we were just talking about in that it being too serious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that it was like, well, we want to make consequences and we want everything to be like super important. So you know, kill the man off. Yeah, and yet in the following episode, it's barely mentioned. Yeah, everyone's all over it because yeah. no one liked the awful little gobshite anyway. <laughs> but I mean, like. I think if you've ever watched like the the documentary on Earthshock, I think Stephen Moffat said it best. You know, nobody likes these sort of teen geniuses. I no. mean, your you, your American parallel is Wesley Crusher, bless him. Absolutely. And um, as in terms of the silent credits thing, you know, Moffat said it best. He says like you, you kind of can't really win either way with it because either you you go off with the usual jaunty theme music, which is a bit naff, or you run the silent credits, which is crap. So, you know, I think had it my way, I think I'd rather just have, go out on the on the theme tune to be honest, rather not have like these those daft silent rolling credits because it's like ultimately you sort of think, really, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, the six doctors for the twentieth anniversary story, a few bridges were burned and kindling was laid for future burnings. Director Douglas Camfield was reportedly annoyed at not being first choice, although his health would have prevented him from returning. Robert Holmes, brought in at the request of script editor Eric Sayward, was unable to make his idea for a multi-doctor story work, though his involvement would later lead to the case of Androzani and Sayward falling out with John Nathan Turner. The ticklist writing process was compounded by the uncertainty over whether Tom Baker was going to appear. 
when Terrence Dix took over the writing, he was annoyed that when Sayward kept inserting Cybermen into the script. For a celebratory story, it was something of an ordeal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for further information, I would recommend checking out the Five Doctors DVD. Mm. Um because wow what an absolute clusterfuck of a production the five <laughs> doctors was and this is why previous to the day of the doctor i was adamantly against the multi-doctor story because mm-hmm. i thought it's going to be like this again <laughs> and like you said i mean although it's sort of enjoy it's got that it sort of turned into enjoyably naff mm-hmm. for me the five doctors um i especially like um uh, what's his fa- you know when things are going wrong in the death zone sort of slamming his hand into <laughs> into the thing with all the little models and he's put a black gov on especially yeah to do it you know it's kind of it's it's kind of guff and you know you can have fun watching it with mates as you can see the cyberman wearing jeans and mm. all this sort of thing and you know like you say it's let down by the fact it's such a tick box exercise yeah. um but yeah it was an absolute mare to produce and mm. that's not a secret yeah, I mean, I still like the Five Doctors, but it's a bit of a... Cause, I mean, it's it's definitely worth like checking out for the commentary with uh, Peter Davison and Terence Dix, especially when uh, whenever the Cybermen showed up. Eric said, put those bloody Cybermen into my story again. <laughs> you just imagine people storming into offices and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, number 30, Cyber Disagreements. The authorship of Attack of the Cybermen is disputed. Credited to Paula Moore, real name Paula Woodsley. It was either written by Woolsey, written by Woolsey and heavily rewritten by Sayward, written by Sayward or plotted by continuity advisor Ian Levine with Sayward adding the dialogue. To this day, no one has been able to agree about it nor satisfactorily answer the question, why on earth would anyone claim to have written Attack of the Cybermen Part 2? Yeah, because that sucks. (laughs) Jesus, it's a crummy story, um, mm. but obviously it, it gets disputed because you know who's going, who's getting paid. Mm. That's why you know these things get disputed. But um, yeah, it's um, I don't. I think if I had been any part of Attack of the Cybermen, I would be massively denying it. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's. Oh, <laughs> it's... It, you know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's, I can't even, words are, words are failing me. Yeah, it, it really is guff. Mm-hmm. God. And actually, when we were talking about, you know, the violence oh. in the show, if, I'm not sure if Mary Whitehouse ever saw this episode, but she would have absolutely, she would have had heart attack. Yeah, well, she because... needed to see it. <laughs> She didn't need to see it. I don't need to see it to know that it's bad. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm an advocate of put it on the TV. I don't really care. You know, I'll make a decision about it. Mm-hmm. But blimey, the first time I saw a take of the side men in that whole thing of uh, what's his job telling his hands crushed mm-hmm. and like you see the blood and all that. And it's actually pretty strong stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you've got like the doctor, you know, just doing his best Sam Peckinpah impersonation with the Cybermen. Yeah, and absolutely. Like, Bloody hell, man. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's strong stuff, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I mean, if it was me, I wouldn't want to say I'd had anything to do with it. But there you go. Yeah, well, we'll be coming back to this, but yep. first, number twenty nine, Grimwade syndrome. Director Peter Grimwade got things done, even if he wasn't the most popular man amongst the cast. His episodes were tight, well paced, and visually impressive. Although his script writing was variable, the show needed distinctive directors of Grimwade's ability at the time. 
After a story he was due to direct fell through, Grimway took the cast and crew out to dinner, intending to take John and Nathan Turner out separately. He never did, as the producer felt he'd been dingied and <laughs> as the producer felt he'd been dingied and took the hoof. Grimway never directed for the show again and eventually handed over his final script to the show to be finished by Eric Sayward. Yeah, um, can we, let's uh, say, you might be noticing a theme of interpersonal problems related to JNT. Yeah, just a few. Just a few, yeah. Um, there was quite a, I mean, at the time as well, I mean, the show had been on forever and ever, mm-hmm. and it was being made with less and less money in less and less time, and it it was one of these things of these stresses started to have impact behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And this goes on and on and on and on. As say, and the the falling out between Eric Saywood and JNT is legendary. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just one of those things of, you know, this guy forgot to do this, and so you get into a huff about it, and then you don't talk, and then you know, it's just one of these interpersonal things. It just happens, and mm. you know, it, it's it, as far as when you're as, as a viewer, if you're just watching it and you're not interested behind the scenes stuff, you know, and in this time, this stuff didn't get out because there was no internet and, you know, because if Stephen Moffat was doing stuff like this, it would be mm. all over the internet, yeah. you know, so um, <laughs> we just see the, we just see the Grimwade episodes and we enjoy them, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it's sort of, you know, the more, the more things like this crop, crop, crop up, you sort of like wonder how they've managed to get anything made at all. Yeah. You know? Um, it, as exemplified by number 28, exploding typewriters. Here is understatement of the century. The twin dilemma is not very highly regarded. Oh, you it fucking think. Yeah. It certainly fails to disguise its financial constraints and straddles the dividing line between brave and foolhardy with reckless aplomb. It is frequently voted as one of the worst stories ever and follows one immediately from a story voted one of the best ever. The Caves of Androzani. 80s Doctor Who often fluctuated wildly in quality from one week to the next and is perhaps the best example of how frustrating it could be. The writing process was further complicated when Anthony Stephen claims his typewriter had exploded. Obviously, this was no excuse. Duncan Bowles' typewriter explodes all the time and he just sucks it up and meets his deadlines. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, um... I would say a uh, variable quality might be one of the most, you know, might be one of the watchwords of 80s Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. To say that Twin Dilemma is not very highly regarded, like I say, might be understatement of the century. <laughs> Remember the first time I went to watch it, it was on UK Gold. Mm-hmm. And um, I was monstrously hungover. So right. I thought, great, I'll just watch Doctor Who. So got up made a nice big cup of tea, got made sort of nice fried egg sandwich, turned it on. Ten minutes later, I turned it off and went back to bed because I was like, fuck that. <laughs> also, it was so loud. It was it was making my hangover worse, mm. like the just the visual style. Yeah. I was like, I, I can't do it. Turned it off, went back to bed. Yeah. I, I, when I watched Twin Dilemma for the first time, I was going into it knowing it was shit. So yeah. I think that sort of lessened the impact. I mean, it was still sort of like, whoa, <laughs> you know. I knew it was shit, but it wasn't this shit. Yeah. <laughs> but... um, so if we're going to talk about the twin dilemma, oh, yeah. why don't you go ahead to the next point? <laughs> oh, this is probably the biggest thing. Out of 80s Doctor Who, this is probably the biggie. Number yeah. 27, Strangling. 
Not content with merely being a below-average story, the twin dilemma decided to go one further and by making the new Doctor thoroughly unlikable. While this approach has its fans, the consensus is that the show went too far when the Doctor attempted to strangle his companion. Perry, who suffers so much in the TARDIS that she makes Tegan look like Joe Grant, has almost forgiven him by the end of the episode. Viewers, on the other hand... To this day have not yet forgiven him. Yeah. I think in, in some circles. Yeah, um, it was it was too much. Mm. Um, when you sort of... When you learn about the Baker era and what... The Colin Baker era and what they wanted to do with the character that they wanted to do a long story arc. They wanted to, he was intending to stay around for as long as they would have him. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to do this thing of we start unlikable and then we begin to soften it. Yeah, fine, but you can't. <laughs> and as well, you got to remember as well that Twin Dilemma was the end of a season. Yeah, right. So you've left the viewers with this guy who just strangled his companion, mm-hmm. and you know, change my dear, not a moment too soon, mm-hmm. being an arrogant prick. You know, and then I am that's the doctor. for months. Yeah, I mean, like, I am the Doctor whether you like it or not. Or not. Yeah, you know, exactly. Screw you, viewers. And, mm-hmm. you know, because I've talked to Chuck about this because he was watching this TX, mm-hmm. you know, and I said to him, how did you feel about it? He's like, I didn't even know what to think. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just this idea of what has happened to the show. Yeah. You know, and because, again, without the advantage of, I mean, fanzines and stuff were kind of, in their sort of at their birth point at this time in the show's history. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people watching this in isolation, and I think as a young fan, I would I would not be like, oh, I've got to watch next season. Yeah. Because this guy's awful. He's just tried to kill the companion that we love. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just it, it's too much. Yeah. And it's and it's such a bad story as well to put a tin out on it. Mm-hmm. It really, you know, you really wonder. Well, I mean, it it becomes apparent later. People turned off in droves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's oh, it's like wow, you know, it's it's just ridiculous. As I and it links into the next point, number twenty six. <laughs> this is all rather violent. Season twenty two came in for criticism for its violence, as the show had before. According to director Graham Harper, the plan was for it to be broadcast in a later time slot than before though this ultimately fell through, which means you could tune in at 5.20pm to see men drowning in acid baths, mercenaries having their hands squeezed bloody, and hybrid Dalek brains blobbing up and down. It's the kind of thing that could be used as incriminating evidence for a show under threat of cancellation. Fortunately, the production team has seen no evidence to suggest this whatsoever. Um, really? I think that might be a bit of a sarky, yeah, right. <laughs> a sarky comment. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this put the show on the chopping block, essentially. Mm. Um, and this whole thing of, oh, well, I thought we were going to be in a later time slot. Don't be stupid. Yeah. You knew it was going out of tea time because everyone still regarded this as a children's show because mm-hmm. no, no one who wasn't a fan had been watching it for five years. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> do you know what we said about it going on the chopping block? I think it's almost deserved, to be perfectly honest, because yeah. you look at some of the stuff that went down. I mean, they didn't even mention in the two Doctors when the Doctor, you know, takes out um Shockeye, one of the villains by Glor like you know just just outright murdering him and then he makes like a pithy quip about it. Yeah. It's... I mean because like we say, we we don't mind that Doctor Who is scary or occasionally a violent thing happens or the doctor, you know, does something you might find morally questionable. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But in season twenty two it was just robocop levels of violence (laughs) at tea time Mm -hmm. you know and again you had no kind of advance warning so like i say if you want to 
if you want to have this stuff, you want to be able to make an informed choice. Mm. And, you know, without the the comfort of ratings or being able to tape it and watch it again later and all this sort of thing, you know, because um, I would say I would I would implore people to say, if we don't know what we're talking about, seek out the scene in Attack of the Cybermen where the mercenary has his hands crushed mm-hmm. by the Cyberman. And imagine that going out at tea time yeah when you've got small kids watching it yeah i mean i mean even things like in the new series when you have like planet of the ood where um the villain starts to turn into an ood at the end spoilers um even that's relatively tame compared to like what happens to Lytton in attack of the cybermen yeah, I mean, because it's off screen as well. The the big transformation where he like he basically coughs up his own brain. Mm-hmm. Um, although you see it land in his hands, you don't see it like full tilt, mm-hmm. like camera it's, right on it. Yeah, it's not like David Cronenberg. If it was like directed by David Cronenberg, he'd be like it would be like his throat would be bulging out, and then he would be popping out of his mouth like an yeah, egg. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's you know, and we when we talked about looking back on series 1 mm-hmm. with how the the cutting of um Dr. Constantine transform, transforming into the gas mask zombie. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean uh, even like Cassandra's death at the end of the, in the end of the world. Yeah. It goes right up to the point and then stops. Mm-hmm. Season 22 steps over. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't I think it actually like stomps on the line as it crosses it. Yeah. And then you know, shows its ass to the line having left. <laughs> <laughs> Takes a shit on it. And yeah, then... absolutely. <laughs> okay, so for the time being, we're going to leave it there. But join us in the next episode when we tackle numbers 25 through 1. So until then, thank you very much, Emma. Thank you, Mike. And we'll talk to you next time. To be continued. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs>